If you have a Bible, why don't you find your way over to Psalm 126, please. Psalm 126. And if you need a Bible to follow along, we have some there on the entryway table. You can sneak out and grab one if you'd like. Psalm 126 is our text this morning. I came across an article some time ago on autoweek.com, and here's what it was titled, Four Reasons Not to Restore a Vintage Car. Now, hopefully I don't hit any nerves that are too raw here this morning. I'm sorry if I do. But maybe you're thinking about, maybe I want to restore a vintage car. Well, here's what autoweek.com had to say. They gave four reasons, or the writer did at least. This is one man's opinion. Why he says you should not restore a vintage car. He says, number one, you will not make any money. Number two, you're going to spend more than you think. Number three, you probably won't finish. That's a big one. And number four, he says, protecting this heirloom isn't worth the aggravation. And he came to that conclusion because Auto Week interviewed a fellow who has at least 17 full restorations under his belt. And that guy calculated that the average job takes about 2,000 hours with a return payoff equal to about $3 an hour. And so if you're looking for a part-time job, that's probably not the best one. The author's conclusion, you might be better off buying a car someone else has suffered through. Not a bad idea. Psalm 126, where we are this morning, is one of the songs of ascents. They are a particular group of psalms in the Psalter. They're all packed together, starting at Psalm 120. And they were songs that were sung each year by Jewish pilgrims who were traveling up to Jerusalem for the annual feast. That's why they're called songs of ascent, because in the Bible, since Jerusalem is on a hill, it's always pictured and described as you go up to Jerusalem, right? So you have these 15 songs that are called the songs of ascent, that you as a Jew living somewhere else in the world or living somewhere else even in Israel, you would go at least once and probably more than once up to these annual feasts in Jerusalem. And as you went, you would sing these 15 psalms to help pass the time and to help prepare your heart for being in the presence of the Lord. And you know what? They're great songs. They're uh, 15 of them, as I said, starting at 120, and um, then they just go back to back to back. And, you know, even though they're, they have a specific cultural purpose, at least for their original audience, it's appropriate for us to make them our own as well as Christians. Now, we're not Jewish people headed up to Jerusalem for an annual feast, but it's appropriate for us to take these songs and make them our own because we also are pilgrims on our way up. We're on our way to the new Jerusalem, right? Like Abraham, we have our sight set forward to a city whose builder and maker is God. And of course, Peter calls us what? Strangers and sojourners. And your Bible translation might even use the word pilgrims. We're pilgrims on our way to the new Jerusalem. And so I certainly commend these psalms to you. And here, number 126 shows us a magnificent ongoing restoration project, not of hot rods, but of human beings, of human hearts, of you and me. And as the singers point out in, there in the first verse of our text, it is the Lord's work. He began the work. He will be faithful to complete it. We are the project that He is bringing from, be uh, from uh, beauty from ashes, and it's a great, great thing. And what's interesting here, though, I think, is that the song also gives us the perspective of the person being restored. It's not just from God's perspective. It's from the, the project's perspective. We, as the people who are being restored by this incredibly gracious God, uh, what do we have to say about that as we realize what He's doing? If, you know, if we use our real-world example, 
what would the car say in your garage that is being turned from rust bucket into prized possession, right? I suppose the average, you know, vintage car in the garage might do some complaining, right? Why is this taking so long? How come my engine is still not installed? Why do you keep putting paint cans on my hood? Those sorts of things. My brother-in-law uh, inherited and has been in the process of restoring a 1956 Oldsmobile Rocket 88, right? But it, it's been in his garage a long, long time. It was in his garage a long time before he even got the engine to turn over. And he's, he's taken it up and down the street once or twice now, but it's a long time. And every now and then when we're over there, um, I kind of peek into the garage and, man, there's all kinds of stuff piled on top of the car and, you know, parts of the car over here and the wheels are off and the bumper's off and the glass is all out. And, man, what would the car say if you gave him a microphone? He might might do a little bit of venting on us there. But our, here our song is not like that. This song, from the perspective of the project, of the person, it's rich and it's full and it's encouraging and it praises the Lord for the work in our lives. And so we're going to take three main headings today. We're going to look at the singer's hindsight. We're going to look at their call for help and then their wonderful hope for what is still yet to come. Let me read our psalm for us. It's meant to be sung, but we'll read it. It says, a song of ascents. When the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. And then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us and we are glad. Bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. Those who sow in tears shall reap in joy he who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. Before we go any further, why don't we pray once more? Lord, this is your word, and it's a message that you wanted to deliver to the people of the earth. And that means, Lord, it has something um, precious and wonderful and important uh, for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would teach us this morning by the power of your spirit what your living word has to say. Lord, for those of us who are Christians here, that we would realize more and more how great and wonderful you are and how great and wonderful the work that you're doing in our lives is. And Lord, if there's anyone here who's not a believer, we pray that as they take a look at these magnificent words of what you've done, that they would realize um, how great and how good you are. Lord, that they are imperfect and in need of salvation, but that you are more than ready to forgive them and to give them an eternal inheritance in heaven if they would put their faith in you, repent of their sins, and trust you as their Savior. We love you, Lord. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the time to study it here uh, freely and openly in this place. In your name we pray, amen. Now, in verses 1 through 3, our first heading, the singers share a little hindsight. And I say singers, plural, because we don't know who specifically wrote this particular psalm. And throughout, we see that it is a corporate song, right? Look at the pronouns, we, our, us. This is a group song that all of the redeemed are meant to sing together. Now, the first Jews to sing this song, we believe, were those who had been released from the Babylonian captivity. And now they were free to go and live as God's people once again, taking the trip to Jerusalem to worship the Lord and be in His presence. And their hindsight here has three characteristics. First, in verse 1, we see that they were confounded. It says again in verse 1, when the Lord brought back the captivity of Zion, we were like those who dream. 
uh, great sentiment. It was just an unreal set of events for them. It was like a dream. They couldn't believe what was happening. In the late 1970s, there was a Russian Jew named Natan Sharansky. He uh, worked with the Aliyah movement there in the Soviet Union, trying to help um, Jews get to Israel and trying to share with the Western world some of the uh, human rights injustices that were happening in the Soviet Union. And because he was a, a Jew who wanted to go to Israel and because he engaged in the work that he did and contacted Western journalists and those sorts of things, uh, he was imprisoned by the KGB. And he wrote a book about his nine years in the KGB prisons and the labor camps. Uh, it's a pretty interesting book. And one of the remarkable things about it is that he remembers incredible details about specific conversations he had. And he would go at different times during that imprisonment on long hunger strikes um, that would last, you know, 30, 40, 100 days at a time. And he could remember specific details about on this particular day, here's what happened. And when I went and had this interrogation with this official, here's what he was about. And here's what he said to me. And here's what I said to him. Just a lot of detail. He has a wonderful mind for memory in the book. But then one day, he's there in the labor prison, and because of outside events that Mr. Sharansky didn't know about and the activism of his wife who is in Israel and other folks who worked with her, with, uh, with her excuse me, um, one day the guards just came. They said, come with us. They got him dressed. They, uh, and he didn't know what was happening. They put him in a van. This would happen from time to time. They would either transfer him, but he didn't know what was going on. He didn't know if he was being brought out to a field to be executed. He didn't know if he was just being brought to a different camp. He, wasn't, he didn't know if he was going to a new trial, which they would do sometimes to extend their prison term. And then all of a sudden, they just bring him. They don't, won't talk to him, and they bring him, and they put him on an airplane, and all of a sudden, they fly him to Israel, and they drop him off, and he's just free. And he didn't understand what was happening. And what was really remarkable as you read his story is that he says, you know, the first few days when I was finally reunited with my wife after like 13 years and after I was finally free, he says, I don't even know what happened. They told me I talked to President Reagan on the phone. I don't know what we said. I don't know what I said to my wife. I don't know what she said to me. He said it was just so unreal. It was like a dream. And then finally, his mind kind of caught up with his situation and his circumstances, and he was able to start tracking again. But that's kind of a real-world example of what the singers here are describing. All of a sudden, their captivity was over, and they were sent home to be in the presence of the Lord. And they said they were like those who dream. And what a great descriptor of the work of God in a life. He does what a person could never do on their own. I mean, he breaks the bonds and looses the shackles that we could never get out of on our own. In fact, he does much more than that. It says that he makes us into a new creation through and through. And then the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our lives, and he fills us with everlasting life and gives us a promise of an everlasting future. I mean, that's a, that's a good dream to have. If you're the kind of person who has frequent bad dreams or frequent nightmares, you know, you'd probably like to have a dream like this. Man, I have an everlasting hope. I have an everlasting future. Everything is brand new and full of vibrance and full of life, and that's what the singers here are talking about. And not to mention the fact that, of course, the Lord breaks the chains of sin and death and guilt, and He wipes them away from our lives and from our hearts. I mean, it's, it's unbelievable, really, if you penciled it all out. You think, no one can do this. Well, we can't do it, but it's exactly what God does over and over again in the lives of His people. It's like a dream. 
great descriptor of God's work. Now, in verse 2, we see their hindsight was not only confounded, but then it made them celebrate. It says, then our mouth was filled with laughter and our tongue was singing. When God is working in our lives, the mark is joy. That is a principle through and through in God's work, or in God's Word. When the Lord is working in the lives of His people, the mark is joy, joy coming out of them, joy surrounding them. That doesn't mean things will always be pleasant. In fact, we know from reading the Bible that very frequently, very often, the lives of God's people are not pleasant in that they are full of difficulty and struggle. But we can always, always rejoice in the work of God. That's just the truth of the Scripture. And we're commanded to, right? Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. That's the command that comes to us from the Bible. But not only is it commanded, it's exampled for us on the pages of Scripture. What were Paul and Silas doing that night in the Philippian dungeon? And they weren't just in the drunk tank over, and I know they had been uh, brutally beaten. They hadn't done anything wrong. They had been beaten and then put in stocks and then put in the deepest part of the dungeon. This is not a minimum security luxury prison. Uh, this is a terrible place to be. They would have been in an excruciating pain following their uh, beating. They would have been in excruciating pain just being in the stocks. But what were they doing that night? Well, we know they were singing and praying. They were praising the Lord. They were rejoicing to the Lord. The apostles, remember earlier in the book of Acts, they had been called before the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling uh, council. They were effectively like the Supreme Court of the nation. And they said, hey, we don't want you talking about Jesus anymore. And they said, we're going to talk about Jesus. So they were brutally beaten as well. And what did the apostles do? It says that they went out rejoicing. They were so excited that they were counted worthy to suffer like their Lord had suffered. They went out rejoicing. And so that kind of celebration, that joyful celebration is possible when we realize that God has not only given us freedom, but He has given us a future. If you're the apostles and the Supreme Court brings you before them and say, if you talk about Jesus anymore, we're going to kill you. And to show you how serious we are, we're going to beat you with very little mercy. How do you go out rejoicing? Well, you can only go out rejoicing if you think, man, I've got a future. I've got a home in glory land that outshines this sun, right? I'm headed somewhere, and who cares what these guys do to us? We're going to be rewarded before the bema of Christ. We're going to live forever in the new Jerusalem. We're going to be in eternity with the God who loves us and who made us and who has done all of this for us. That's how they could rejoice during tribulation because they understand they have freedom in Christ and a future in Christ. And when a person has this understanding in their minds, then the result, according to the Bible, is great amounts of joyful praise. You squeeze this kind of person and worship comes out. Uh, they're just people of cheer and people of melody. If you get into the different um, definitions of some of the words here that are used to describe God's people in this Psalms, it, one of the words, and in some of the translations, it'll even call them merrymakers. Uh, man, God's people are meant to go out as merrymakers, uh, just praising the Lord, being full of good cheer. That's what being a Christian is about. They celebrate their faith. They're not burdened with it. And then we see a third characteristic of this hindsight. They were confounded, they were celebrating, and then they confirmed what God was doing through their lives. Let's look at the rest of verse 2. It said, Then they said among the nations, The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are glad. The nations here 
are Gentiles. They, it means that they were people who did not belong to God. They did not believe in the God of Israel. And yet, you know what they do here? They invoke the name of Yahweh. They don't just use some generic term for God. Oh, their deity has done great things. They say, hey man, Yahweh, the God of the Jewish Bible, has done great things for these Jewish people, these people who believe in him. As the pilgrims were rejoicing, the world around them was watching. And the only conclusion that the Gentiles around them could come to was, man, look at what the God of the Bible has done for these people. That's a great thing. You know, God never plans to go unnoticed. You know, we, 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 we serve a God and we're created by a God who's all about the business of revelation, right? He's revealed generally through creation, He's revealed specifically through His Word, and then He goes about revealing Himself in lots of different ways, in particularly through the lives of His people, through the things that are going on in your life, and then how you respond and how you glorify God through what's going on in your life so that people can see that God is real and that He is alive and that He's doing stuff and that He wants to know other people. He wants to save other people. He's a God who does not want to go unnoticed. His desire is to reveal Himself to us and then through us. And the Bible explains that the Lord wants to build testimonies in our lives of who He is and what He has done. And you know, He hasn't just done a thing or two that one time way back when. Oh yeah, I kind of remember when, yeah, that, that God guy, he, he did something for us way back when, right? That's the kind of thing that politicians do, right? They make these big promises, and then every now and then, they kind of pick one out of the hat. Oh yeah, I remember when I said I would do that one thing for Poughkeepsie over there, I'm going to go over there and I'll throw them a little bone. And then people say, oh yeah, way back in, you know, 1981, the state legislature did this one thing that helped us out and then we haven't heard from them since. Well, that's not at all what the Lord is like. He hasn't just, just done a thing or two. He has done great things for his people and he was still doing great things for them. And here the pilgrims take the opportunity to confirm that work, and they turn back to those nations in the song here, and they say, you know what, you guys, you are right. The Lord has done great things for us, not just in this circumstance, but here's the work that He's done for our hearts and our souls. Here's how He's made us glad. We were captives, now we're free. Let me tell you about the God that we serve. And they could testify that God was doing a full restoration in their lives. He was going all the way, not just, not just doing a thing or two, but he was doing great things, bringing them all the way where they needed to be. Now, here's something important, uh, the them and the us in these verses. Who are the them and who are the us? Well, we know they're pilgrim Jews who had been released from captivity in Babylon, right? The Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us. Well, who are we talking about? Well, originally, who they're talking about are the Jews who were released from captivity in Babylon. But we actually know more than that. In Ezra chapter 1, we can read the proclamation of King Cyrus of Persia, who allowed this group of people to go free. Here's what he said. This is Ezra 1 verse 3, Cyrus talking. He says, any of you who are his people may go to Jerusalem in Judah to rebuild this temple of the Lord, the God of Israel. And so it's the whosoever of the Jews in Babylon. And most of you know, or you may be surprised to learn that not all the Jews left Babylon. Lots of them stayed but lots of them went. Lots of them took the invitation and said, yeah, I'm leaving Babylon. I'm going back to the city of Jerusalem where I'm supposed to be so that I can worship the Lord and be in His presence. And so what Cyrus did, he sent out this proclamation, 
And he said, who wants to go? Who of the people here, who wants to go? Who wants to go be in the Lord's presence? And you know, the same invitation, the same whosoever welcome and invitation is given when it comes to salvation, when it comes to discipleship, when it comes to being used by God in His service, when it comes to being full of the Holy Spirit. Any may, who wants to, whosoever will, can receive these things, can be used by God, can receive salvation, can be full of the Holy Spirit. And along the way, as we walk with the Lord and as we take up His invitations in our lives, we're given opportunities to then turn back and confirm what God has done and proclaim Him to the nations around us, to the world around us, and say, hey, look at what God has done in my life and in my community and in His church. That's what we're seeing here. Now, in verse 4, we see our second major heading, they shared their hindsight, and now the singers call for help. Verse 4, bring back our captivity, O Lord, as the streams in the south. And so their praise turns to prayer here, and they petition the Lord for His help. Bible commentator F.B. Meyer wrote this. He said, when God has done much for us, we may venture to ask more. I love that quote. That's great. We don't need to feel bad about asking the Lord for His help and for His intervention and for His presence in our lives. In fact, the fact that God is working us in us is a great, uh, uh, a great marker that we should ask the Lord for more and, and that we should draw nearer to Him and press harder into Him. But wait, hadn't the Lord already brought back their captivity? Didn't they just sing a song about how the Lord brought us back? Hey, the Lord brought us back, but now here they're praying, Lord, bring us back. So why are they praying for the same thing again? Well, they had been set free, yes, but here the singers asked the Lord to bring them back in full measure and great strength. And remember, they were pilgrims on their way to a temporary stay in Jerusalem. They were just going for the feast, and all the singers of this song sort of historically, are, they're going up for a temporary stay in Jerusalem, a temporary visit to the temple. And if you sang this song, though, and made it your own, it meant you had a heart like King David's, right? They wanted to abide in the city of God. They wanted to stay in His presence. They wanted to be settled there. Lord, I want to go, I want to be brought back all the way so that I don't have to leave Jerusalem again and go back to wherever I'm from. I just want to be with you. I want to be worshiping in your presence. A day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. That's the sentiment here. They wanted the Lord's work to flow fuller and fuller like a torrent of water hitting the Negev desert. It says, Lord, like the streams in the south. And they're talking about the geography of Israel, the Negev desert, difficult place, super deserty. And they're saying, no, Lord, we want torrents to come and, and hit our lives like a huge rushing river hitting a desert and all that that would do for that dry land. And we can make the jump real easily to our lives as New Testament Christians, right? What did Jesus say He wants for us and His plan is for us? He said that our hearts would become streams of living water, torrents of rushing water flowing out of us, His everlasting life. A stream or a river or a torrent is a better word for our terms here. It is by definition something that moves. It progresses. It does not stand still. It does not become stagnant. It is fresh and vibrant and moving and progressing. It's on its way somewhere. And so God's intention for us is that rivers of life will be flowing out of us that we not become like ponds or bogs of standing water. 
If all you had was a bog, man, you better not wash yourself in it. You better not drink it. You better not stay too close to it. There's mosquitoes all over the place, right? That's not the kind of water the Lord wants us to be. No, He wants us to be a flowing torrent where His life is coming out of us and flowing into our communities and into other people's lives, and we are refreshed and refreshing as we go. Or here, using our classic car analogy, uh, the restoration analogy from today, the prayer for help here is kind of like this. Lord, don't just make me pretty to look at. Don't just make me glossy on the outside. I want to be fully restored. I want to be put out on the showroom floor and race ready at top speed. That's the prayer. Bring me in in full measure, in full strength. Lord, I want all of that work done from the ground up, or in our case, from the inside out, where I'm completely restored. And this prayer for help in verse 4 shows that these pilgrims had a drive to receive more and more spiritual torrents from the Lord, bringing new life to the dry and barren world around them. And then finally, in verses 5 and 6, we have our third heading. We've seen the hindsight. We've seen their prayer for help. And now the singers proclaim their hope for what is still to come. It says in verse 5, those who sow in tears shall reap in joy. Sounds like one of the Beatitudes, right? Blessed are those that mourn. But here are singers, they knew that the Lord was far from done with them. He wasn't done. And as they looked down the road on their way to Jerusalem, they were really looking into the future, knowing that there was a greater day coming when they'd have even more joy than the joy they had right then as being free from captivity. They said, yeah, but we've got more. We've got harvests of joy coming in the future. And we notice that they pray for help in verse 4. And here by verse 5, we realize that they knew they would receive it from the Lord. So they say, Lord, please help us. We need, we need more of your intervention. We need to really be brought back all the way in in full measure and in full strength. And then you get to verse 5, and they know it's going to happen. They say, man, we've got a harvest coming because we know who our God is. And so they have this great, great hope. They understood the principle that ha of heaven that hadn't really been written yet, but they understood it, that God works all things together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purposes. That's written about you and me if you're a Christian here this morning. They understood that despite circumstances or sufferings, God is able to make all grace abound toward you, that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance of every good work. That's Paul's writing in 2 Corinthians 9, 8. And so our God brings beauty from ashes. He brings joy from mourning. He brings victory from persecution. And he will put a harvest of joy in the hands of those who are willing to go out and sow. That, that's just a biblical principle. He says he will do it. The singers of Psalm 126 had this hope. They had this expectation. And we see that it was a settled hope because they repeat the same thing again in greater measure there in verse 6. It says, He who continually goes forth weeping, bearing seed for sowing, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. And so we, like all the pilgrims of the Lord, may have times of great trial or great difficulty. We may have mountains in our obstacles. We may have dangerous paths to take, but uh, certainly the original singers had their share of hurt and heartache and, and uh, sorrow. But the very act of sowing shows that a person has a future hope. It shows that they believe a harvest is coming, right? A farmer doesn't go out and sow in his field if he thinks there's no harvest coming. 
I'm just going to go out here and just waste my time and waste my resources and waste my energy. I'm going to sow a field, but nothing's going to grow. The whole point and the whole idea is that the farmer says, well, I've got this bag of seed. It seems like nothing right now, but I'm going to go out. I'm going to cast this into the ground. And you know what? In the process of time, I'm going to reap a harvest, a harvest that's going to sustain me and a harvest that is going to bless me and bless others, a harvest that is for my benefit and for the benefit of the community. And so it shows that they believed a harvest is coming. And sowing, and we're speaking spiritually now, sowing into our spiritual lives and by drawing near to the Lord and walking by faith, well, that shows that a person trusts in what they know to be true and then orients their behavior towards that goal rather than orienting their behavior around circumstances. And here's what I mean by that. A farmer may look out and say, well, there's no harvest here. And, and look, look at what the season is. I can't get any food out of the ground right now during this season. It's the dry season or it's the cold season or, what, or whatever, right? But instead of orienting their mind and their behavior around the immediate circumstances, the farmer says, well, I know another season is coming. I know the rains are coming. I know the harvest time is coming. And so the farmer orients his mind or her mind around what they know to be true. That harvest time is coming, and so today I need to go and sow. And so there are things that we know to be true from God's word, and we need to orient our minds and our behavior around that. For example, I know the sun will rise tomorrow. It's not conditional on what's going on in my life or, or in anyone else's life. The sun is going to rise tomorrow. It's going to rise in the east. We can clock it. We can know with calculations. If I know exactly, I can ask Siri right now, what time is the sun going to rise? And she'll tell me, right? We know that that's true. We know that Christmas is coming on December to the 25th. That's just what's going to happen. Whether something good or something bad happens in my life, that day is coming. And you know what? We also, also know that the Lord brings a harvest to the work that we do, and he brings his reward with it. If we serve the Lord and if we walk by faith, we can be just as sure that that harvest of joy and that reward is coming. He has said so, and he's proven it for thousands of years through millions of lives. He's got a really great track record. It's 100%. For millennia, through multiplied millions of lives, as we can say, yes, the Lord did this. Yes, the Lord has done great things. Let me tell you about what the Lord has done. And so we can take it to the bank for sure. He has proven it. He's the God who can bring harvest from the crushing of seed. He's the God who can bring streams to a dry desert, freedom to captives. He takes the rusted, ruined, defective human life and restores it to not only be beautiful, but functional. That's what's great. And then he asks if we will move with him through life and ultimately into final glory in heaven. You know, when a classic car is being restored, it's a, or when it is restored, it's a pretty thing. Even if you're not into cars, I mean, it, it's really neat when you're at a parade or if you're at, you drive by a car show. It's really cool to see the, the restored cars, right? But more than just something to look at, if that car can then hit the road and actually go somewhere and, and drive from place to place, that's, that's a great product. It stands as a testament to the incredible amounts of work and expense and craftsmanship that someone went through to go from junk to jewel, right? It's amazing. That's a remarkable, remarkable 
project and product. Now, if we could somehow take that and magnify that project to the eternal degree, well, then we start to catch a glimpse of the great things that God does with human lives that he restores, with each of his people, each of his children, saving them not just from the junkyard, but from utter and everlasting destruction, and not just slapping on a new clear coat, but rebuilding every piece to his specification, not just for us to be ornaments, though we are, and not even just as instruments of his work, though we're that too. But then he says, hey, not only are you going to be an ornament of my glory, and not only are you going to be an instrument for my service, you are also going to be an associate in my next project. I'm going to take you and the life that I've restored, and I'm going to have you work with me on the next project, on the next person, on the next life that we're working on. He sends us as associates into communities around the world to be a testimony, to go find other captives and let the rivers of life flow from Christ through us to them. What an amazing thing. And so this short song gives us a huge scope of the work of God. It speaks to prodigals. Uh, it speaks to pilgrims. It gives us hope at any age and in any stage. It has tidings for each and every one of us today. And as we close here, take note of this truth from Psalm 126. We belong to a God who does great things for his people. Of all the things that a limitless, all-powerful God can do, look at what he has decided to do. You know, God could be out creating other universes right now if he wanted to. God could have just folded this one up and say, man, that, that went poorly. Let's get rid of that one and start again. Let's get rid of this free will business. I mean, God is limitless, all-powerful, uh, omnipresent, omnipotent, all of these things. He could do whatever he wants to do. And what has God decided to do? He's decided to do restoration projects of our lives that we have ruined He's decided, I'm going to redeem this world, and I'm going to redeem people within this world, and man, is it going to be tough work, because we make it so tough so often. We just won't yield so often. He says, but I'm going to keep working because I'm going to do something incredible, something dreamlike in this life, and in this life, and in this life, and in this life, millions of times for thousands of years. And so, of all the things that God could be doing... He has decided to pour out His love on us to set us free from our captivity and then make a promise and a plan for our future. And we see here in this psalm, this is the way that it's sort of contextualized. His plan is to bring us back, right? Verse 1, bring us back. Verse 4, bring us back. Verse 6, come again, bring us back. And so what does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the term bring us back is a term reminding the people of God's covenants with his people. And it's a term that means these things, to be brought in, to be gathered in, to bring to pass, to arrive, to be included, and to receive a harvest. And so let's apply those things to us. We will be brought in to heaven. We will be gathered into his presence. God will bring to pass his purpose for our lives. We will arrive in glory forever free from death and sin and sorrow. We will be included in the kingdom of Jesus Christ and in his inheritance. And we will receive harvests along the way as the Lord bears fruit in us and through us. That's the deal. That's the truth of God's plan. These are the settled hopes of our faith. And so what do we do? Well, it's very simple. It's God's work. Uh, he brought the captives back. It's his work in this psalm. 
He did the great things. He accomplishes these purposes. And so our part is to be his pilgrims. Who did God do this for? The whosoevers that, that Cyrus said, hey, whoever wants to go and be a part of this, go for it. And some people said, eh, we're just gonna hang out here in Babylon. We're not captives anymore, but who wants to leave? Uh, okay, well, these people wanna leave. Let's get home. Let's get back into the presence of the Lord. And so our part is to be pilgrims. Our part is to walk with God and abide in Jesus Christ. What were the original singers doing as they sang this song? They were going to be in the presence of the Lord to worship Him at His, at his house, in His temple. Very simple. And so don't return to captivity. Don't stay in captivity if you find yourself there today. But surrender to God and allow Him to continue the work of fully restoring your life until we awake in glory face to face with our Savior, finally, fully in His likeness, made perfect by our matchless King, our hope, our help, the author of our salvation. Amen?